All right, well, it is such a privilege, like Rich was saying, to be gathered together today to um, study the Word as a church, and it's been a thrill teaching this series. Figure out where my stuff is. There we go. Uh, hey, I hope it's been helpful to you. Has it been helpful? I mean, we just, we're just we're not done with it, but uh, we're partly, partly through this. And if you're new, this is a series on growth. So God has saved us, He saved His people, and He intends to grow His people. Um, we're calling it growing up because that's God's goal for every single one of His children. And if you want to kind of keep with the, the birth to adolescence to maturity metaphor, um, God has uh, given us new birth in Christ, and now He's powerfully working in us. He's powerfully using everything in our lives to help us develop into spiritual adulthood, or like we're calling it in our series, spiritual maturity. And we took that first week uh, way back when, uh, just to kind of get oriented to this topic, to get our minds around this concept of what maturity is. And I've been calling maturity what? How, what's the shorthand definition of this? The process of thinking. Yeah, somebody said progressive sanctification. It's good, but I, I've never actually said that. <laughs> oh, man. What's that? I'll give you some hand gestures. I, I do this with my kids. It's helpful. Desiring. Doing, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, the process of thinking, desiring, and acting like Christ. So it's progressive, right? It's a process. We never arrive at any, you know, perfection. But it's the process of thinking, desiring, and acting like Jesus consistently. And that is what I think, just a shorthand version, there's a lot of ways we could maybe define that idea, but that would be the kind of the, what, what maturity is. The spiritual adulthood is consistency in these, these things. And that was week one. Um, in week two, really two through five, we looked at this, uh, these, this thing I've been calling the means of maturity, and we looked at how God's been at work in our lives to make this growth a reality for us. We saw how he's given us his spirit. I don't have these laid out here, but he's given us his spirit. That was in week two. He's given us the word of God, the truth. That was week three. We also saw how he's provided the church to help us grow. That was week four. And then last time we saw how he's even using our experience in the world, our sufferings that come to us to grow us, and that was week five. So these were all these sort of means of maturity, these, these tools in the hand of the Lord that he's using to bring us, to grow us, to bring us to, to full adulthood. Now, I was talking to some of you, and some of you were like, what, what, are, we te- what are we learning next? Like, what's the next topic in Boundless, now that we're done with that? And uh, I laughed, and s- some of you thought it was over uh, since we finished these, the, the means up last week. We are just getting started, okay? Uh, we've talked about what God's provided for us and how he uses each of these means to grow us, but we haven't talked much about the actual process, right? Kind of like, here's some tools that the Lord's using to give us confidence that He's all about our growth. But how does it work? How do we start from, and go from spiritual infancy and then make progress step by step to spiritual adulthood, to spiritual maturity? Or we could say it like this. How does the Spirit actually use His Word in the church to make me more like Jesus? What's my responsibility in this process? 
So those are great questions and questions I want to unpack in the, really the rest of the series, which will probably take us close to the end of the semester. And these questions are, are very relevant because every one of God's people sins. We have a, a very real looming problem. And especially if you're less mature, you're not really sure what to do about these problems in your life. These sins. Sins that beset you. You're often tangled in these things. You're, you're ensnared by them. You pray about your sin, but it just comes back. You try to resist it, but the temptations seem too great. And then guilt compounds, and you try to figure out what to do with it. And so there's a lot of confusion around this, this process of growth in the Christian life. So we want to look at that this morning. In the next few weeks, really through the end of the series, my plan is to delve into this change process. Again, it's going to be a crash course because we could talk for a long time about the dynamics of this. Um, it's pretty com- complicated at times, but at, at a high level, it's not. It's pretty simple. So I want to give you this, this sort of crash course, and I'm going to call it the, the process of, of maturity. So lesson six through question mark, because I'm not really sure uh, how long this is going to take us. We might end, we, we definitely won't go past the end of the semester. So I'll, just, I'll give you that. All right. So it's called, it's a process of maturity. And I'm going to assume something. I'm going to assume that most of you struggle with sin. Is that fair? Okay. So I'm going I'm to start there. Uh, we're going to start here today. And first we're going to look at responding rightly to your sin. So this is the starting block, if you will, to this, to this race. First, we have, to, we have to respond rightly to our sin. That's because our hearts are not only deceived to sin, right? We know about that. But it's, they're often deceived after we sin. Even our solutions to what to do about our problems are deceived. And it's a vicious cycle. So we sin, and then we're, we try to make our own solutions, and then we keep sinning. And it just, it's this, so we've got to break the cycle. He wants us, Christ wants us to end this cycle, and it starts with responding biblically, responding in a way that pleases Christ after we sin. So if you want to think about it like, just in general, like a health analogy. It's like your besetting sin is you, you got shot, you know, on the street. And now you're bleeding out, and you got to get to the ER to stop the bleeding, or you're going to die. Okay? So your besetting sins are that way. And you, if you don't know what to do with them, you're just bleeding, and you're not really sure what to, how, to, how to respond to this, we've got to start here and to respond rightly to the sin. Now, after you've stopped the bleeding, now you're in a position to start healing and getting into the rehab process, if you will. And I call this fighting by faith and learning how to do that, learning how to, to take these, these patterns, these besetting patterns, now that you've, okay, okay, I'm handling it rightly, they're responding to it rightly now. Now I've got to learn to fight it. And fight it by faith. And this is where we start noting the patterns of our sin and, and, how, and what it looks like to discern the lies underneath that sin. How to renew our minds in it and apply specific truths to how we're thinking. And learning to yield to those truths day by day and not to listen to what we might want or think or feel in the moment. And this is what I like to call learning to fight by faith. It's the rehab process if you want to kind of stay with our, our illustration grow stronger. And once you've been cleared of the spiritual injury, so to speak, now you can turn your attention back to your life. 
Now, in this stage, you sort of take what you've learned in this fighting by faith area. You've learned kind of the process of fighting your sin, and now you apply it to other areas of your life. You're more proactive. If the, if the previous stage was reactive because you're, you're, you're ensnared in sin, now you know how to fight it, and now you're proactive. And I like to call this stage living fruitfully in all of life. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It just means now you've got the rest of your lives out there, and you're going to take what you've learned in the area of your besetting sin and apply it to other areas of your life. Now you're really adding muscle. You're not just trying to get over an injury. You know, you know you start to work out. And finally, as you're learning to practice this day in and day out, as you've experienced real growth according to Scripture, now you're in a place to really start influencing others. And to stay with our analogy, you're, you're now becoming a personal trainer. Okay? I know it's kind of lame, but it's a good picture. Okay? You're not going to be a personal trainer if you're, if you're bleeding in the ER. But you will be um, if, you're, if you've been working out and you know the process. It doesn't mean you stop exercising, but you're bringing others along with you. You're showing them how to build spiritual muscle as well. And again, it's not, the, the Christian life is not this clean. You know, there's often an overlap between these stages. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm just trying to carve this up for you to help you see some, some, some steps, some kind of a process of where we're going in the next few weeks. And this is going to be the practical part of our series that builds on um, everything we've talked about so far. So today I want to focus on the absolutely critical first step when it comes to growth. And if we're, going to go, if we're going to grow, it starts with responding rightly, or we could say responding biblically, to our sin, when we do sin. Now I know this might sound weird, but like we're going to see today, the Bible has a lot to say about this, this very, this very step. And it's crucial for us because of how severely we are tempted to respond wrongly to our sin. So it starts all the way back in the beginning. You remember how Adam and Eve responded wrongly to their sin? Eve was deceived by the snake, and that led her to eat the fruit. But it also led her to some deceived solutions, or to really to both of them, to some deceived solutions about their sin. What did they try to do? Initially, they tried to sew some leaves together to cover their nakedness cover their shame, which that ultimately didn't work. And then when they heard God coming, they tried to hide. Again, that's a bad call. It's not smart to run away from the only one who can fix the problem. And yet, even as God's people, we are tempted to run to our own solutions when we sin and not to God's solutions. So I want to take some time this morning and unpack four ways that Christ wants us to respond to our sin. All right? Four ways that Christ wants us to respond to our sin, or you could say four initial ways to respond biblically to your sin. This isn't comprehensive. This isn't the whole change process. This is just that sort of first step. Now, here, here are four ways we're going to do it. it. And each of these ways, okay, as you can see, I already put the first one up there. Um, each of these ways comes with a negative and a positive. Kind of a don't do this and a do this instead. So there's actually eight ways. <laughs> the nervous laughter. It's my way to squeeze eight and four, okay? So the first one is, do not despair, but have hope. Now, I think we can cover these first two fairly quickly, okay? Do not despair, but have hope. 
Right? When it comes to change and even to responding to, uh, to the sin that we're in, we have to start here. It's so easy to despair after we have sinned. You know what I'm talking about. Now, when I'm talking about despair, I'm not talking about mourning over your sin, being broken over sin, or even feeling the anguish of guilt. All those are very good and appropriate things for us after we've sinned. But despair is one step further. Despair is what unbelief feels. Despair says things like this. There's no hope. And that's a lie for a Christian. It's a lie for an unbeliever too. There's always hope. Despair says, I will never change, and I'm, I'm, I've got to be forced to live like this the rest of my life. That's another lie, by the way. Despair says things like, God must not love me if I, can, if I sin like this. Again, another lie. If you're a believer, these things could not be further from the truth. And no matter how entangled you are in sin, God has committed himself to you. We've seen that in you know, all these, these last few weeks. He's implanted His Spirit within you. His Spirit never leaves a job unfinished. We've been studying Philippians, and I've wrote down Philippians 1.6 here as a reference. It says, He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He started He saved you. It was not of your own doing, as we're here in Romans 5. And God's not going to leave the work undone as complicated as your sin patterns seem. And if God loved you when you were His enemy, Romans 5, then He certainly loves you now as His child, even though you're sinning. And not only does He love you, but He has also gifted you, and He intends to make you useful in that gifting. Ephesians 4. He intends to mend you and make you zealous for good works, even if you feel like that broken arm right now because you're in sin. You don't feel very useful. Your kind of arm's in a sling. You know, but you got, you got, your arm needs to be mended. And Titus 2 talks about that as well. You can just write these references down. Titus 2, 11 through 14 talks about how God has saved us for good works. So that means then, if He saved us for that, and His grace is training us, He's going to teach us to, to overcome these things. So my point here is just there is hope. Instead of despair, we should have hope at all times, even when we're right in the middle of a besetting sin pattern. Hope fixes itself to what is true, despite what we may feel. So here's what hope would sound like in a moment where we're tempted to despair, even right the moment right after we've sinned, okay? Even in, when you don't have any idea how to get out of it. It would sound something like this. Father, I have just sinned again. And I have no idea how to make progress in this area. And I'm really discouraged. But your word says that you are going to finish the work you started in me. You hear the hope? It says you're faithful. It says you won't leave it half done. It says you will sustain me to the end. And present me guiltless before you. 1 Corinthians 1, 
And I'm not sure how to go about it, but I trust you to do it. I trust you that you're going to complete the work. Now, there's certainly more that we're going to do, but it starts here. We strive, we fight from hope, not for it. It's a crucial, crucial difference. I want you to be aware that you're going to be tempted toward despair right out of the gate. And if that's you, you've got to isolate those thoughts. What, what kind of things are you despair? What kind of things are you saying to yourself after you've sinned? Is it true? Take those thoughts captive. Don't sin twice. We say this often. Don't sin twice. <laughs> you've already sinned once. Don't keep compounding it. Don't keep sinning again and again in how you're handling it. Okay? And the first idea, the first, the first thing we want to do is grab those despairing thoughts and bring them to the Savior. Combat it with texts like Philippians 1.6. Now, the next way we should respond to our besetting sin pattern would be this. Don't isolate, but seek help. Don't isolate, but seek help. When you and I are trapped in sin, what's the last thing we feel like doing? Telling somebody, yeah, like getting help, getting it out there, getting it in the open. We don't want to bring it to the light, or we're tempted not to, because we think we can manage it ourselves, even though what we've been trying in our own wisdom is clearly not working. You know what I'm talking about? We often struggle with what others might think. If I come to Pastor Clay or Pastor Rich, will, will, it, will they judge me? If my mentor, will, they, will they, my, that mentor figure, that balance leader, will they think I'm Im, immature? What if they think I'm an unbeliever? We fear the shame of admitting to someone else that we are ensnared. We don't know how to get out of it. In our deception, we want to hide, like Adam and Eve. But when we do that, we cut ourselves off from the church. Remember the church? (laughs) One of those means that God has given to us to grow us and change us? You're cutting off one of the very means that God has designed to help us. And so instead of isolating, the Lord wants us to seek help when we're ensnared. And I've written down Galatians 6, 1 here, Ephesians 4 as well. But over in Galatians 6, 1, Paul calls on the spiritual people in the church to restore those caught in any transgression. Just go ahead and turn there real quick. I've preached like two sermons on this over the summer, toward the tail end of the summer. So I'm going to be brief here. Those are online, I believe. So you can go back and look at those. Galatians 6, 1, this is, this is, he's targeting the spiritual, but it has an implication, I think, for, for those of us who are caught in sin, okay? He says in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, sorry, I hear pages, and stop. You guys there? All right, 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watching yourself, lest you, you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul is saying here that Christians can be overtaken by sin patterns to the point that they are ensnared. And the idea of being ensnared is you're caught in a trap, uh, you're, you're kind of overtaken, and I think the implication is you don't, you're not quite sure how to get out of it. You might know some, some things, you might know a couple you know, different options or thing, you know, things you, you've heard before and you've tried to throw at it, but if the reality is you're, you keep doing it, you keep coming back to it, you're ensnared, you're caught. He's not saying every believer, every time they sin, needs, needs to go to a discipler and have the discipler fix them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's talking about the ensnared category, somebody who doesn't know how to get out of this thing. And they need help. And so what Paul does here is he calls on the, the people he calls spiritual to help these folks. Now the spiritual in the context are those whose lives are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Just a few verses earlier, Galatians 5. It doesn't mean they're perfect people, but their lives are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, which means they know how to overcome the works of the flesh. And so these spiritual people are the ones who are called to, to help restore, to put on the mend, to make them useful again. And if that's what God has set up then, it, and if you're the one who is ensnared, this text implies that you should seek out help from someone who is spiritual. You see that? You should seek out help from someone in the church whose life is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Not perfect. And the easiest way to do this is just to contact me or Rich and say, or one of our wives, and say, hey, I need help. And we will gladly work to connect you with someone who can provide that kind of restoring help. We're training our boundless leaders even right now. So that whole group of people that we presented to you at the beginning of the semester, we're training those folks in discipleship and counseling in this restoration ministry and how to, how to come in and help folks uh, overcome sin patterns. So my point here is that we're, we're actively working and we're actively committed to trying to help restore you. But we're not going to know that you need it unless you ask, okay? Or unless it, if the Lord reveals it, you know, in a circumstance. But it's much easier if you just ask. So please don't isolate. Don't think Clay and Rich are just too busy. We're just going to add more to their plate by telling us, telling, those are just excuses, okay? We're not too busy. You're not going to bother us. Don't just keep limping along out there in silence um, if you need help. Satan wants you to stay isolated. He wants you to pretend that everything is okay. Now, why is that? Because if you do that, you will be ineffective in the church. You're going to be ineffective gospel witness because you're, you're debilitated. You're bleeding out, to use our analogy. You need help, so, so avail yourself of the, of the spiritual in this Galatians 6.1 category. Christ has a far, far better way than, than staying there under that guilty conscience. Okay? So let's talk, let's talk specifically in the rest of our time about that better way. All right? So here's a third way he wants us to respond. To our sin, and it's don't deny your sin, but confess it. Don't deny your sin, but confess it. 
Uh, if you would, we're going to be in 1 John the rest of the time, so you can go ahead and turn over to 1 John after you, after you write that down. First John 1 is where we will be. The worst thing we can do is to deny our sin. And the best thing, simplest thing, most refreshing thing we can do is just own it in confession. Sounds simple, but uh, can be a challenge. <laughs> so turn over to 1 John. We'll drop right in here to to verse 9. I think I put 8 on there, but it's actually 9. I'm looking at the wrong wrong text. I was right. It is is 8. He says in 1 John 1, 8, If we say we have no sin, there's denial. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, there's the positive response, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, there's denial again, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So let's work this out a little bit. John's saying there's a wrong way to approach your sin as a believer, and that's to deny it. Then there's a right way to respond to your sin, and that's to just own it in confession. So let's think about this. Let's think about some ways that we're tempted to deny. Let's put a little bit of shoe leather on this, okay? Because they're saying, I'm not denying my sin. Of course I would admit I'm a sinner, right? Oh, but we do, okay? So here's some ways that we are tempted to deny. We're tempted to deny by ignoring our sin. I've given you a, a little shorthand definition out to the side of this. Ignoring our sin, and that's when we pretend that nothing is wrong before the Lord or before others, even though something is wrong. Okay, That would be called ignoring your sin, and that would be a way of denying it. You're saying it's not there. Not a big deal. I'm not going to confess it. I'm just going to ignore it. Just pretend it's not even there. So what, what, what would be a good example of this? I mean, if we could talk about these examples all day. I'll just give you one or two, okay? Let's say you blow up at your roommate night, you know, night before. You go to bed. You don't, you don't resolve it. You just kind of blow up at him. And then you wake up the next day, and you just pretend like nothing happened, right? No one's ever done that, right? In your home or in your upbringing, yeah, that's never happened. That's ignoring, okay? We're saying that, that blow up didn't happen. Like, we're just going to pretend like it's, it's not there, that's not good. That's a form of denial of our sin. All right, here's another way we do it. We minimize. We minimize our sin. And what do we mean by that? We're talking about when we acknowledge the problem of sin, we say, yeah, okay, I've got a problem, but, but we begin to downplay its, sin, its sinfulness. We acknowledge that we have a problem, but we downplay its sinfulness. We don't. It's not, it's not that. It's not that bad, okay? Just this little thing over here is plaguing my life. You know, I realize that lust is a problem, but doesn't everyone struggle with that? Yeah, look around. Everybody's it's just everybody's dealing with it. it. Can't be that bad. What's the implication? It can't be that bad. 
not really hurting anybody for me to look at porn. When we think these kinds of things, or we even maybe verbalize that, we're saying, okay, yeah, there's a, it's a problem. Nobody's not going to say that's not a problem, but it's not that bad. And that is a form of minimizing because the Bible actually says the opposite of that about lust. It says that it sends us to hell if we don't repent of it, and it's worthy of gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands to deal with it if necessary. All right, that's the way we minimize. Another way that we do this, is, or another or the way that we deny is by minimizing. Another way we deny is by blame shifting. Which means we, we place blame, or we place ultimate responsibility. That's the idea. You place ultimate responsibility on someone or something outside of you. So you're saying it's not my fault, ultimately. It's that thing's fault. Or that person's fault. I would not have done this had it not been for that. Certainly the way it feels, right, in life. So you think about Adam's classic line, it was the wife you gave me, Lord, you know. Genesis 3, what is he doing? He's blaming his wife and ultimately the Lord. You know, you wouldn't have created her in the first place. It wouldn't have happened. It's her fault, not mine. Or how about some of these? You know, I know I just bit your head off, but I haven't had my coffee yet. <laughs> my lack of caffeine is to blame for my sinful speech. It's not my heart. My heart that Jesus says it, 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 that reveals the true intentions, you know, through my words. It's not that. It's my caffeine. It's my lack of it. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm biting your head off. Or how about this one? She made me really angry. Okay. Yeah, circumstance maybe. Maybe she said that rude thing to you and did your heart respond in anger to her? It did. But why don't we use that language? Instead, well, no, it's easier to say she made me angry. She's culpable. Well, I'm so anxious in these kinds of situations. What are we saying? The situation is the problem, not my heart's response to that situation. So, it's home, doesn't it? These ways that we, that we deny our sin. Let me, let me hit a fourth one here. Call it relabeling. Calling sin by a different name. Calling sin by a different name. It's another form of minimizing. All right, you ready? This isn't going to be good. The most common way I hear this amongst amongst ourselves is this word called stress. Hey, it's not a very descriptive word because it could mean a lot of different things, right? It could mean I'm feeling stressed, meaning I feel pressure from my circumstances. Sure. But oftentimes we say we're stressed when we're just terrified. We're sinfully afraid. We are anxious. But stress sounds so much better. It sounds less indicting. We say we're codependent instead of the fact that we fear and idolize other humans. Right? I need, I need these affirmations. I'm codependent. I, 
No, actually, the reality is the Bible would describe that as the fear of man. So we relabel all the time, and, and that was just a, we call sin by a different name, and that's another way of subtly denial that John is warning us against here in 1 John. So we're all tempted towards some form of, of, of this, some form of denial at one point or another, especially in the areas of besetting struggle. And it's worth thinking through how you're tempted to do this. Okay? Because you will be. Especially in that sin that you keep going back to, you're going to be tempted to, de- to deny it somehow, to minimize it in some way, to relieve yourself of the guilt that you're experiencing. But if you deny your sin, you won't ultimately experience Christ's cleansing mercy. You won't have his divine power to overcome it. So instead of denying it, we're called simply to confess it. All right? So what does that, what does that mean? This confession. Go back to there. What does confession mean? Confession just means taking full ownership of our sin. We own it. We admit to God that this sin is what he says it is. We admit to God that we're culpable, we're to blame for this sin, not anything else. We've got nothing to boast in. All confession is, is it's saying, I am guilty just like you have said. And all we can do, as we'll see, is plead for mercy. Confession is, I'm guilty. When David, when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, said, listen to this simplicity. I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, well, have you ever tried to rein in your lustful desires? I just had to take her. You know, he started defending himself. or It wasn't that bad. I just murdered her husband. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, 13. The tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18, 13. Psalm 51 is another great example of a, of a prayer of confession. True confession is born out of the conviction that all of my sin comes from my own heart and nowhere else. Doesn't come from my circumstances, doesn't come from other people, doesn't come from the devil, but it comes from my own heart. And that's Mark 7, 20 through 23. Now, that's not to say there weren't these sort of X factors in our temptations, right? I mean, we, we're definitely tempted, and it's definitely more tempted towards sin because of these X factors that come into our lives. But who is to blame? Ultimately, it's you and your heart. It's me and my heart. Bottom line, it is me. Mark 7. All these sins, he lists out all these sins, and he says it comes from within, from the heart, Jesus' words. Now, practical thought here is when we're owning that and we're saying, okay, yes, this is, this is where I'm at, I often will advise people to write out a prayer of confession. Kind of study these things up. I'll give them some samples, have them study Psalm 51, and I'll say, okay, now I want you to write out a prayer of confession because I want to see, are you truly owning it? Or are you kind of slinking off and trying to kind of relieve some of that burden and pressure by some form of denial? And it sounds, sounds hardcore, but I want, I want to keep you here in true biblical confession because this is what opens the floodgates of mercy and power in your life. 
and I want to see how you're owning, owning your sin. Now, let me say real quick that oftentimes when we feel the weight of our sin, we feel its guilt, we're studying it out in Scripture, and we're seeing, wow, I've minimized it in all these ways, and it's really a lot, more, a lot worse than I think it is. And it's starting to weigh down on you. We start realizing, I can't squirm out of this. I can't blame it on anyone else. And then we confess it. We're very tempted in that moment to do something else. We're very tempted in that moment to offer a sacrifice of atonement for our own sins. We're tempted to base our relationship with Christ on something other than what He's done, something we can kind of bring to the table. We try to find some way to pacify God after we confess. And we call this self-atonement. And that leads to this fourth and final way that we try to, uh, or that we might respond, respond wrongly to our sin. And it says, don't try to self-atone. That would be the wrong response. But entrust yourself to, to Christ completely. So let's, let's try to nail down this concept of, of self-atonement real quick. It might be new to some of you. When it comes to our sin in the Bible, our sin causes real guilt. Okay, if you've been in the world, you, you've been listening to the radio and all those things, everybody is trying to say guilt is false guilt and just kind of get away from it. You know? Don't let yourself feel that way. Well, that's just running contrary to the data. Because when you sin, you incur real guilt because we really are culpable before God. We've transgressed. And there must be some type of atonement, some type of punishment for sin to make things right again. And in our guilt, we perceive this. We know it. And we sometimes try to atone for ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God, like Adam sowing his fig leaves and you know, whatever else he was trying to do. So what are some ways we try to what are some ways we try to do this? Let's look at self-atoning versus Christ's atonement, okay? We try to heap up some more punishment on ourselves. Here's some ways we're tempted to self-atone. We try to heap up punishment on ourselves, and, and usually it's mental. Okay, I don't know many of you that are actually, you know, whipping yourselves before you go to bed at night. Don't do that. Um, but usually it's mental, more, more punishment. We say, we say things like, I'm such a failure. I'm a wreck. I deserve judgment. It would be better if I never existed. You know, those kinds of things that we just kind of run on autopilot. We cycle through. I'm so terrible. I'm such a failure. I can never do anything right. And it stays there, right? And functionally, what's happening? Functionally, we're hoping that if we beat ourselves down enough, that we'll relieve the guilt that we feel. Or if we beat ourselves down to other people, that they're going to see that we feel really bad about what happened, what we did. And these are often attempts to just assuage that guilty conscience apart from Jesus. Okay, so more punishment. More repentance. Okay, or you could say more effort. More effort. I'll never do this again, we say. Next time, I'm going to try harder. And we immediately jump to solutions to try to fix ourselves, 
so that we feel better about ourselves. And functionally, what we're doing is we're hoping in more effort next time rather than in Christ. As we're going to see, effort is very important, but you can't hope in it. It's a false hope. Or we might think more time. More time. Okay, I can't go to God now after I've sinned. Surely He's upset with me. I need to let Him cool down. In a few days, once I've not committed this sin anymore for a while, then I'll start praying again. And then He'll see that I really mean it this time. What are we doing? Well, we're functionally hoping in as time passes, then God will cool off and we can come to Him again. And that's not... Time doesn't atone for sin. Your repentance... Your effort does not atone for sin. Your punishments of yourself does not atone for sin. These responses are rooted in pride. Because we say, I was perfect before this, and now I've got a problem, and I've got to quick fix it so I can get back to being perfect. But instead, we have to realize that we were never good. <laughs> we weren't good when God saved us. We're still in ourselves not good. The only goodness we have is because Christ is working it in us. And we've got to realize that what God has exposed in this moment, what God's exposed in our hearts, that's not even half of it. We desperately need His atonement. We cannot atone for ourselves at all, in any moment. And only He can provide what we need. And the glorious reality is He has. Fully, finally, and freely. So instead of trying to atone for ourselves, we need to look to Christ in faith. We need to renew our minds in everything He has provided for us. Everything He's earned for us. He is our atonement. He is our perfect sacrifice even for our besetting sin. And that's exactly what John says here in, in 1 John. That's where he goes. He says, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, now... You might think, confess it, right? That's what we just said. That's not what he says here. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's he doing? He's saying, get your eyes off your solutions and turn them to Jesus. If you sin, look to him. What is Jesus for us, okay? How is Christ our only atonement? Let's, let's look at what he says here. He calls Jesus our advocate. Our advocate. You see that down in verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And he's referring to Christ. An advocate is a friend that's high up, and he often represented, other, he represented his friends in court. And in this case, it's the most important courtroom, it's God's courtroom, the heavenly throne room, and Christ is your powerful and influential friend. He's advocating on your behalf to the Father. He's advocating. He's there. He's pleading your, he's pleading your cause. But how? How does he do this? He points to himself. Notice also that Christ is our righteousness, it says. John says, we have an advocate with the Father, and notice how he's described. This advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
Why does he call him that? Why does he call him the righteous one? Because he's the righteous one, not you. And this verse implies that his very righteousness is credited to you. That's why you should look to him. It clothes you like a warm winter coat. And as he advocates on your behalf, he points to his own righteousness he earned for you and he gave to you freely by his own work. And not only does he advocate with you in the courtroom, not only is he providing righteousness, but it, John goes on to tell us how this, how this occurred. It occurred because he's our propitiation. John says this in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation, if you're new, this is an incredible word. It's a big word, intimidating. But it just means that Christ is the wrath absorber. Christ absorbed all of God's wrath. His wrath that was coming at us, wrath that we deserved for our transgression, the guilt that's, that, that we feel, that we know, okay, I do deserve something for this. Wrath was coming toward us, and God put His Son in between us. Christ stepped in between that and absorbed all of that wrath to its fullest extent. He drank the, the cup, that bitter cup that we talk about, that's full of God's wrath, and He only left blessing in its wake. Because of this, because of his death, if you confess your sin and you entrust yourself to him, you will never, ever, ever experience any of God's wrath. None of his judicial punishment. Because Christ has already absorbed it. Now that is a glorious thought. Okay? So, we've got to see how we're tempted to sort of self-atone and then come back to the atoning work of Christ. John urges us to appropriate this into our lives when we sin. You see that? If you sin, he says, look to Christ. As we confess, we don't merely just confess and then get up from our knees with nagging doubts about God's love for us. We don't get up with these nagging doubts about whether or not we're going to have to pay for our particular sin. We must appropriate the death of Christ entrust ourselves to Him and all that He's done and get up now and live in the joy of that and strive to be obedient, as we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, strive in that kind of hope. Because He's there. You have an advocate. Now we need to live like we have one. Another practical thought here is that I often have people not just write out prayers of confession, but also write out prayers of thanksgiving. Because I want them to see, I want to see what passages are they going to to build this hope up within them. Are they going to 1 John chapter 2? Are they looking to Jesus? Are they looking to his promises? Are they thanking God for his promises? Even if we're not, even if we haven't quite gotten to the point where we're changing yet, we can still thank God for Christ and his propitiating power in our life. So, I think that's about it for today. If we jump back, actually, no. I want to close with this hymn, The Rock of Ages. Not singing it, but I want you to see how a long time ago, very old hymn writer, 
captures this. He says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? What he means there is my zeal to repentance. Could my repenting zeal never cease? That's the idea. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Even if I cried and repented, Thou must save, and Thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. I love that desperation. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. He got that. He's understanding the desperation that we're in and how not to self-atone, but to avail himself of Christ's atonement. So, next week, we're going to pivot, and we're going to talk about that fight of faith. Okay, But it starts here. It starts here, and we, we want to fight from hope. We want to fight out of this clean conscience where we're confessing sin, and we're appropriating Christ and all of his promises. Okay? You are dismissed.